I want to finish, well, try to finish this morning that overview that we started last week with the handout that I gave you. And what I would like to do is elaborate just a little bit more on um, these respective role responsibilities of the husband and the wife. And that's, um, I believe that's the way we should phrase it. Uh, It isn't a matter of one is better, one is more superior, one, that's not the way to look at it. As I've said several times when I mentioned it in those articles that I wrote, that you have, um, equality is stipulated in the scriptures, but it's how do these two equal people, husband, wife, man, woman, in a marriage relationship, what are their role responsibilities before God? And uh, it seems to me with that, it's just to remind, um, remind ourselves that when God stipulates or characterizes something as good, as he did in Genesis 1, um, it means that which is conducive to order and conducive to life. That is the biblical understanding of good, when God is the subject or the actor or the, or the creator or whatever. So when he creates the institution of marriage, which he did in Genesis 2, God has an ideal in mind. Now because of the corruption and, and, and nature of sin in our lives, it is difficult for us to reach that ideal. But that ideal, as God always does with everything in his ethical standards, he never lowers the bar. So, what I, again, what I, what I want to finish this morning, and uh, to be blunt with you, what I'm talking about and what I wrote about in those articles is not where our culture is. I mean, our culture isn't even close to this. And there, uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I've been called a lot of names uh, because of what I've taught on this, but uh, I'm, I'm believing uh, the best I can possibly do that I am reflecting what the Bible says. And uh, that's always my responsibility as I see it. So, what I did, do not think, I'm not sure I did, I don't remember if I did, but uh, what I, I don't think I did last week was just float this term out here for you, uh, and it's kind of a big word, but it's not, it's not a difficult one to understand. But uh, this is not an original thought with me. This comes from a group of men under whom I studied and, and others. The, the term is complementarity. That the Bible presents marriage as a complement. And so, I mean, you know, you know what that means. If there's an I there, you're paying a compliment to somebody for something nice they said or did. That's not what it means. Complement with an E means that something that I'm lacking or something that's deficient in me, uh, my wife, and that's how it would be in, in, in a husband and wife relationship, my wife is my complement in the sense that she fills in where those weaknesses are and so that together as a complementary whole we're stronger than if we were apart. And you know, the, the, comp, the complementarity of marriage is, first of all, illustrated in just the physical differences between a man and a woman. Now, I, you know, you're all adults, so I can talk like this, but the complementarity nature of physically between a man and a woman is very evident in the genitalia. I mean, the way God created the genitals 
it's just very obvious what they're supposed to do. And not only how your body gets rid of its waste, but that's part of the joining together of a man and a woman. God made it that way. And you look at the physical characteristics of a man and a woman in their genitalia, you see that. They are created to be a complement. When we study psychology and the emotions of the difference between a man and a woman, again, whether you want to admit it or not, men and women are different, emotionally and psychologically. That's not saying one is better than the other, one is inferior to the other. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying God created them differently. I mean, I've shared a couple of examples over the years with you in my relationship with Peggy, but there is no question that she is the most important gift God has ever given me next to Jesus Christ. Amen. Because I would, ne- I would never have been able to do some of the things that God has allowed me to do and to have the kind of support if, if Peggy were not my wife. I mean, she is just the perfect complement for me. Where I'm weak, she is really strong. <laughs> and vice versa. So... That's why, I mean, maybe you've never heard this term before, but it's a term that um, I use a lot, and it's a term, when I, I don't do as much of that as I used to do, but do some premarital counseling or even some very low-level pastoral counseling with couples that are having some difficulty. I always start with this and just review it again. That this is how God looks at your marriage. You are compliments. And so what we're doing here in this kind of messy thing I put up here that reflects what your chart is. <clears throat> if you look at it this way, because as we talked last week and you know from your own understanding of Scripture, the relationship of a husband and wife is to be patterned after each one's relationship with Jesus. So as Jesus is the head of the man, the man looks at Jesus as his head, so the husband is the head of the wife. And as, Je- as the woman submits to Jesus Christ, she submits to her husband. Now again, I mean, those two sentences I just stuttered are about the most unpopular things to say today you can possibly imagine because of how so many misinterpret and misunderstand what this means and what this means. It just immediately, the husband's had it, immediately you think of authoritarian, dictatorial, abusive behavior on the part of the man. Well, if that's occurring, that's not what God has in mind. That is sin, that is wrong, and it is absolutely something God abhors to see a man bullying his wife. That is not what that means. So what I want to do in the, some of the time we have here this morning is talk about what does that really mean and what do these three qualities, these are all um, terms that are used in the Bible. This is an Old Testament word fleshed out with these two. This is in uh, Paul's writings and Peter's. This is in Paul's writings and Peter. Submit and respect, these all go together. So what I would like to do is start first of all, well, let me go this way. Start first of all, with this one, and I maybe put these in quotes because they, I'm trying to put in English the accurate translation for a Hebrew word. <clears throat> I want you to, I, most of these things I have memorized, so if, if you want to turn to them, you certainly can, but in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, 
God is creating the institution of marriage. And in chapter 2, verses 18 and following, God gives, Mo, gives Adam his basic moral code, his moral responsibility, and tells him, you are a creative cultivator with me in the garden. <clears throat> but God reaches a conclusion. It is not good that Adam, Adam in Hebrew, is alone. I will create a helper. Old King James translates it, help meet. Which is actually a, a lovely translation of that important Hebrew word. But what does that mean? A helper. Well, it is inferring something. That there's, when God says it is not good for a man to be alone, think of how good is used in the Hebrew there, that which creates order and that which is conducive to life. So there's something deficient there. God hasn't completed his work. But you see, Adam, Adam has to understand that. Adam doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand his need. He doesn't understand that what, what God is doing is not yet completed. So he teaches Adam, if you will, he, through a series of object lessons, Adam comes to understand the same thing God has concluded. So what does God do? He brings before Adam all of the animals that he's created, that God's created. And do you remember what Adam's to do? He's to name them. Now what does that mean? That's a very important concept because, especially in the ancient world, but to an extent, even in our lives, to name something is to have authority over it. And he is God's dominion steward. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and following. Humans, beings, are God's dominion stewards over his world. So he has the right to name them. But as you, again, if you go through the passage, what, what is Adam seeing? He's concluding, I'm the only one that's alone. I'm the only one that doesn't have a partner. And so he's convinced now that, if you will, what God has concluded, he now concludes and he owns it. So then the Lord creates Eve, and it's so interesting, as, as God does that work, he you know, puts Adam to sleep and takes, and this is, the Hebrew word is a little hard, either takes one of his rivers, just a part of his side, that's not a real easy word to translate, but out of, out of Adam, he create, God creates Eve. And so if you look at that very carefully, the very next verse is, in verse 24, because of this, because of what? Because God produced out of Adam a compliment, a helper. For that reason, because of what God has done in creating and instituting it like this, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the Hebrew word there's almost like glue, and then the verb tense changes. And they will be in the process of becoming one flesh. This one flesh union is far more than just the sexual intercourse that obviously is involved in that concept. But the one flesh union means these two distinctive individuals, a male and a female, who are totally different. They're, they have different idiosyncrasies. They have different preferences. Their personalities are different. Their, their emotions are different. Obviously, the physical bodies are different, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They join together. 
but they maintain their uniqueness. This one flesh union does not absolve, eradicate, annihilate, destroy the, the distinctive two. They just are joined together. And so that's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful picture of a marriage. You have these two totally different human beings, different in every, you know, science tells us in every chromosome of their body, and yet they come together. They're in that process of becoming one. And that's, that verb tense is really important because it's symbolized by the union of their bodies in sexual intercourse, but it's far more than they're in the process. And, you know, some of you have been married a long time. How long does it take you to really become one where you're thinking and acting, well, you know, you're just in process? Because you're selfish people. <laughs> the wife is just as selfish. You're selfish, selfish, and you're just constantly trying to overcome that. And all the, but the, 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 the conclusion that Adam, Adam reaches is a conclusion God wants everyone of us to, 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 to realize if we're married. That God has a design for this. And if you don't follow his design, it is not going to work. Because that's why I appeal always to Ephesians 5.32, as I did last week. Marriage is something supernatural. And it is never going to achieve everything the Lord wants it to achieve as he created it. If, you're not, if both of you are not dependent on him. And so, given these two things, first, that the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, are equal before God. Two, the other given, that God has created this institution with an ideal, and that ideal is symbolized by the one flesh union phrase. <coughs> then you have to step back and say, okay, how is this supposed to work? How is this supposed to function? And so that's what the scriptures lay out for us. So the first thing to remember is that she is created by God. The woman is created by God as a helper, a helpmate. That's not, by the way, that term is not derogatory or defamatory, defaming or shaming even because it's used of God multiple times in the Psalms. Over and over, it's used of God with the subject. You can hardly say that makes God inferior. It's just explaining a functional role. And so, to help, not, 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 this again, this is really an unpopular way to put it, but a wife who is a helper to her husband, what does that mean to nurture his leadership role, to nurture his masculinity? as a leader in the home. Now, just, I mean, just think about that, to nurture that. Because what Genesis 3 tells us is, because of your rebellion against me in sin, what will the woman seek to do? Usurp that role. It's very clear when you study that in Genesis 3. That's going to be one of the results and consequences. The wife will always, and I mean, the, the way the text puts it, it's kind of, it will try to usurp that role. And see, that's why, and this is the really important thing that the Bible keeps saying to us, both the husband and the wife 
have the problem of sin. Both the husband and the wife are selfish. Both the husband and the wife are self-centered. Both the husband and the wife are self-indulgent. So to overcome that, you have to come into a proper relationship with the Lord. And two, you have to begin to understand that you cannot pull this off without his help. So, I mean, this is just, for the typical postmodern person in 21st century America to say that the wife is the helper to the man, oh my glory, you'll probably be assassinated tomorrow. But it's, it's, not, it's not understanding what God has done. God's saying, and in the article on, uh, I can't remember whether it's one on marriage or the one on the man, the husband, I, I, I lay out the four major reasons why God gives primary responsibility to the husband. I mean, that's, the Bible makes that very clear. The primary responsibility in the family is to the husband, to the father. I mean, it's very clear. And I said, oh, okay. So if that's true, then it is really important that the helper is nurturing that leadership. Not fighting it, nurturing it. Now, that's what Peter addresses in 1 Peter 3. What if the husband isn't a Christian? But we're not there yet. All right. We have one down and a bunch more to go. <laughs> What I'd like to do now is shift to um, shift to this, the head. As Christ is the head over the husband, the husband looks to Jesus. The husband is Christ's head. Or the, Christ, Christ is the husband's head. But because that's true, then this is true. But if Jesus is defining what headship looks like, then the husband's role as being head, the, the Greek word there is kephale, we get our word cephalic from that. It, you have to really understand that. Is Jesus a dictator? Is Jesus hammering us into obedience? Is Jesus abusive in his leadership role? I mean, you know, obviously they're all rhetorical questions, but the answer is no. Because Jesus is a loving servant head. And if these two are inextricably linked, then this is the way the husband is to be. So what I did in the article was I tried to itemize out um, five major characteristics of a husband who is head, pattering his headship after Jesus' headship. And so first is to humbly and compassionately serve. That's what Jesus did. And the most, I think last week one of you mentioned that when I asked that question. John chapter 13 is a great example that Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. He's humbly and compassionately serving. He's the Lord of the universe. But he's serving. Another example, I just, I'm always struck by this. John 21, Jesus is death, burial, and resurrection are over. He's about ready to ascend to the, back to the Father, and what's he doing? He's making breakfast for the disciples on the Galilee shore. That's astonishing to me. I mean, that is, I just, I must, every time I study that, I just, I'm astonished. Good night. Even in his resurrected, glorified state, he's still serving. And what is he doing right now for you? He's still serving you. Because the Bible tells us he's praying for us. I don't know about you, but that blows me away. That the Lord of the universe, who has been validated by his Father, 
in that Trinitarian relationship as the Lord of the universe. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. Is still serving. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. <laughs> Secondly, well, this goes together, but to, to love as Christ loved. A servant head loves. And you know, I'm not going to write all that up there. I did that last week. But that's a that's agape. That's that wonderful, wonderful Greek word of a, you know, a self-sacrificing. I like to call it an other-centered love. I'm not thinking of myself. I'm always thinking of someone else. In, in this case, your, your wife. And so, uh, I mean, it's, it's willing, being willing to give up things, being willing to surrender certain things, but you're always thinking of the good of the others. Another way to think about this, how does Jesus lovingly serve us? He seeks to lead us in holiness to heaven. That's what he's doing. Lead us as our servant loving head in holiness, that's what sanctification is all about, to our goal. And what's our goal? Heaven. So a servant leader in his home who's serving and loving, and, and remember that's not just, it is primarily a wife, but his children come along children, is to serve with loving headship your wife and your children in holiness to heaven. That's succinctly defining what a servant loving head does. Leading his family or his wife and his children come along in holiness to heaven. And therefore, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, the third characteristic, honor. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands honor your wife. The Greek word is temei. I don't know about you guys, but I'm always bothered when I hear a man refer to his wife as his old lady. Now, I know that's kind of a joke, and that's a funny thing, and, and sometimes, you know, I guess maybe in a certain circumstance. But I'm always, for some reason, that's like sandpaper in, in my heart. That's not honoring your wife in public. That's just, a, maybe you wouldn't agree with that. Maybe I'm taking it too far. But just for me personally... That's not honoring my wife in public. Because for you and me to honor our wives is to it's how we talk about our wives, how we treat our wives. You know, that's not normal anymore, but, you know, used to be you always open the door for your wife. If you're out in public, you hold your wife's hand. You're always, you're always kind of seeing yourself as protecting in vulnerable situation, uh, you know, we used to live in a, uh, uh, and we live in an urban area now, but I mean, we lived in the city for a while and in Dallas, and uh, I remember we would be taking walks and all of a sudden, you know, you're walking down the street and you see some sort of nefarious looking character coming along and it, you know, it's just the way you, and my immediate thought is, I, I get closer to Peggy, and if she was on the sidewalk side, I'd exchange places with her, so she's next to the building. 
Do you know what I'm saying? That's, that's honoring. And again, some of this is really unpopular to talk about this today, but it's, it's part of just seeking ways to always hold high your wife. And it just, in every, I'm just using some illustrations, but in your, the context of your relationship with your wife, just kind of asking yourself, how do I honor her? You know, at giving her flowers every now and then. I mean, um, my wife, and maybe your wife will like this, there are three words my wife just wants me to say, somewhat frequently. <laughs> I love you. She just wants me to say that. That's really important to her. Now, for some wives, you know, the typical man is, well, I told you that at our wedding. Why do I have to keep telling you that? You know, I married you. You know that, so I don't have to keep repeating. Well, you know, just... So it's just, uh, I just gave you a few illustrations, but it's just that holding high. Teme in Greek means to elevate, to hold high. You honor the emperor. Same word, you honor your wife. Now, the parallel could be, as I honor and obey and follow the emperor, that's what I'll do with my wife. I'm going to seek ways to honor her. Fourthly, and this is also from First Peter 3, verse 7, is to understand. Seek to understand. A servant head who loves, who humbly, compassionately honors, is one who seeks to understand. Now, I made some humorous comments last week about that, so I probably won't say much more about it. But I, I really believe it's incumbent upon us to be students of our wives. And that never changes. Never. 48 and a half years I've been married to Peggy. I still don't understand her. I sort of do. I certainly understand her more than in 1969 when we got married. But it's just, you know, my, oh, my, oh, my. I think I know how she's going to respond, but every now and then she throws me a curve, and she doesn't respond the way I thought she was going to respond. I still haven't understood her. You know, I'm still getting a C average grade. On that. <laughs> you know, I've never gotten a B, although my goal was an A. I'm trying to be humorous again. But, you know, it, what... The typical man does, certainly the man that's not walking with Christ, but often even those who are have made the commitment is you just make the assumption. I know all about her. Now all she has to do is just be what she's supposed to be and I'm supposed to be what I'm supposed to be. Instead of understanding all that is about our wives, it gives us a greater capacity than to honor them. You see why... Being a husband is a lifelong commitment. Those old wedding vows that aren't used much anymore in a typical service really nailed it. You know, I seek to honor you and love you till death do us part. You know, this is a lifelong commitment. It's a covenant that I'm making to you, and I'm all in. And, uh, I think it might have been Jim last week who said, you know, this, I'm not sure I'm quoting you correctly, Jim, but this is really hard. This is not, this is not easy. And, and it, anybody that ever sends the message that marriage is easy is an idiot or they've never been married. It's, it's only two other choices, you know. 
because it isn't. It is not easy, but it's you know it's every day you're renewing your commitment to Jesus and you're affirming your dependence on Him, your desire to walk with Him, but it's also you're renewing that commitment to the person that's right next to you every night when you're sleeping, who takes the covers when it's cold. That's my wife. I mean, you know, I almost every morning when it's winter, I wake up with not very many covers because Peggy pulls them on, she just wraps herself in them. So that's all right. All right, now any additional thoughts or comments? I, I want you to consider again that little statement I made that summarizing it all as a servant head of our, of our, of our wife is to lead her in holiness to heaven. Because we're both committed to that. We're both committed to Jesus Christ and lead her and then children. Now, you know, our kids are gone, so that responsibility is, is, is now in their individual family units. But to lead our wives in holiness to heaven. Because we're both committed to him, we're both committed to sanctification, which is that process of him conforming us to the image of, his, of our Savior. We're doing this together. One of the manifestations of that when kids are around is the father should always take the responsibility for some kind of family devotion. And that you have to really be careful that that how you approach that. I mean it's you know, it's just but to to be the spiritual leader. So the father, unless he travels in the nature of his business, the husband slash father should always lead Sunday morning and get everything ready for church. And what I'm, what I'm saying is it's, it's just that is his responsibility before God, and therefore she should be nurturing that. And instead of the husband downstairs watching NASCAR racing, he should be making sure that the spiritual vitality of the family is the primary goal. And if that means we're going to read the Bible, if it only means we're going to read, oh, what's that little thing? Our daily bread at supper time. If that's all you're going to do, then the father should do that. Or the father should say, pretend Fred's my son. Fred, you read it tonight, okay? Or John, you read it tonight. And then you lead in prayer. Or you have, but you're, the, the kids you know, are always looking at you as the spiritual leader of the home. That's biblical. It's extremely unpopular today to talk like that, but that's how the Bible lays out these role responsibilities. So, you were going to try to say something. Is it possible to draw closer to God without drawing closer to your mate? In other words, can you say, I'm really serving God, and yet we don't serve God? Our wives. Well, in a holistic, God-honoring way, Fred, the only way to answer that question is no. I mean, if you are, if you seek to draw closer to the Lord and you know, all of the, the ways we, we do that in our lives, and um, have no concern, no love, no paying no attention to your wife, that's a disconnect that just doesn't seem to me to work. It seems to me as the closer we, we, we are, the closer we are drawing to the Lord, the closer we should be drawing to our wives. Now the only exception to that 
is if she's not a believer. And that's why it's or, important. Or she is in rebellion against the Lord or whatever. But, I mean, assuming there is that mutual commitment to the Lord, then the... Uh, the, the, our closeness should be something you can you can see happening. The closer we get to the Lord, the closer we get to our partner. Now, is that answering your question? I wasn't sure how you were. Okay. Is there anything else? I know this probably a lot of this is revealing. It's warm in this room, and the the the, the result of when you're hearing things you've heard before and it's warm, you tend to get your eyes heavy and I've lost you and you're in never never land in the sleep world. So, uh, uh, whoever's in control of this room, turn the temperature down 10 degrees. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. All right, now let me shift to a, a topic that I have to relate to from biblical authority, not from personal experience, what it means to be a wife. Because I don't know what that means, except what I study and what I've observed in my wife. The, we talked about helper, okay? We talked about this and all of its implications, and we talked a little bit about this. Now I'm going to talk about this. This matter of Smith. In the article, and um, uh, I think we said it last night, is that disposition to yield, that inclination to follow. A disposition to yield, that inclination to follow your husband's leadership role. Now, as Peter will address when we get to it here, before probably before the hour's up, in chapter 3, the first six verses, He's bringing up the topic, what if your husband is not a believer? So right now, I'm just going to kind of sit that aside. We'll get to that in a minute. But this is really important, and I try to drive that home in the article, too. But this does not mean that the husband replaces the authority of Jesus in that woman's life. Do you understand what I'm saying by that sentence? That the husband never replaces... Christ's authority in her life. Jesus is still her Lord and Savior. And so therefore that means, and I think I mentioned this, if, if she's married to an unbeliever, she does not have to follow her husband into sin. If he asks her to steal for him, she's under no ethical obligation to do that. He may beat her, but she's under, I'm just using an extreme. But it's just, it's like in all areas of authority, you, you obey government till it's a sin to obey government. You, you obey your church leaders until they're asking you to do something that's sinful. I mean, that's another extreme example. That's the same here. The husband never replaces Jesus. She is to submit to her husband as she submits to Jesus, but he's still her Lord and Savior. Let's talk about this matter of respect. This parallels uh, the word respect that Peter uses in in, in 1 Peter 3 and that Paul uses in Ephesians 5. It's very similar to honor. Very similar to honor. But it's kind of the same thing. To respect means to not embarrass, to not humiliate, but the same to trust her husband. And then listen, Peter is going to give another twist to this. To respect her husband means she will always adorn her body 
in a way that shows honor and respect to her husband. The tenet of the New Testament is this. We adorn our body in such a way that we do not draw attention to ourselves. That's the biblical principle. Is God against makeup? No. Is God against pierced earrings? No. Is God against um, coloring your hair? No. Is God against a short skirt? No, not necessarily. But let me just use an extreme example. But actually, I've seen this quite a few times over the years of my ministry in churches. Suppose a man and a woman enter church and are walking down the aisle. Now, I'm really using some extreme language here, but some of it isn't. I've seen it, and you, perhaps you have too. And she, the wife, has a very, very tight blouse on and a very high miniskirt and very high spiked heels. And she's walking down the aisle. What do you think is going to happen? Every man in the congregation is going to notice her. And every woman in the congregation is going to notice her. Totally different reactions. <laughs> now, all I'm saying, I'm using, again, a little bit of an extreme example. But the New Testament principle is, do not adorn your body in such a way that you draw attention to yourself. In worship services, especially. Because when you're at worship, your focus is to be on the Lord. And in a way, it's the same way as, as, as a man adorning. It's a, you know, not, usually a man doesn't draw as much attention to himself unless he comes in barefoot and doesn't have a shirt on and his tech, you know, I mean, I would really draw attention. <laughs> Again, I'm using, but it's, so respect, and this is what Peter keys in on in, his, in the first uh, several verses of chapter 3. A woman is to be very conscious of how she adorns her body. In a way, such that she doesn't draw attention to her. Because if she draws attention to herself, she is publicly saying something about her husband. Boy, it's delicate to talk like this in 2017. If there were women here, even in this class, I'm probably getting some pushback. Half of them would probably already have left left the room. The rest would be waiting for me out of my car to ambush me and beat me up. Again, I'm being a little bit humorous. But I'm trying to flesh out the meaning of these Greek terms, and, and, or, and in one case, Hebrew term, and putting it into a four-orb description of what God's ideal is. So, unless you have questions, at 12.30, meaning I have 15 minutes now to cover First Timothy Peter 3, verse 1 through 7. I'm done with it. I'm done with this. I've given you some resources, the articles I wrote, and a little chart, and whatever you may have chosen to write down or whatever. Any final questions or thoughts before we leave this kind of big picture perspective from the, the Word of God? Fred, you were first. Oh, I hit your hand up. Joe? I just want to make sure I heard you right here at the end. A woman... The wife needs to be careful how she adorns her body mm-hmm. as not to draw not to, relate to her husband again. To draw attention to herself. To draw attention to herself. Because in doing so, that so, she is bringing potential humiliation to her husband. 
that's an inference that we draw from that. But I think it's a legitimate inference. It says something about her relationship with her husband. And is there an inference to be drawn that she's in the in a worship environment drawing attention away from that is precisely that is precisely the immediate effect and Paul talks about this as well and here Peter's a little more um, thorough in his treatment on this that when you go to worship do not dress or adorn your body let's put it that way adorn your body in such a way that you you are not drawing attention to yourself because then you're drawing people's attention off of the Lord which is obviously why we gather together in corporate worship. Is that, am I answering your question? I imagine that goes over a little better in today's context. Than well, yeah, I mean, it, it, but it is, it is making a statement. To, uh, if, you know, the husband and wife walk in together, you're, it's making a statement about him, in a sense. It's saying something about her, but it's also saying something about him. And that's probably all I want to say about that at this point, Jim. My wife occasionally listens to your podcast, so I'm going to word this carefully. <laughs> J- Jim Beck is now speaking. No, I'm just kidding. Uh-oh. I happen to be married to what I think is a very beautiful woman. Yeah, she is. Mm-hmm. And she dresses very, very tastefully, very beautifully, I think, but not in a way that would be sensual or anything That's like that. That's a good and way I, to put it. I love to see her dress that way. Mm. Um, I mean, she doesn't do it in any way to distract no. from anything, but it, it, it amplifies her physical beauty, I think. Mm. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Jim, I'm really glad you said that. Uh, I, I, I really do appreciate that because it brings a little bit of balance to <laughs> I was kind of presenting it in, in more of a negative connotation. But what does that mean as a husband who loves and adores and honors his wife to encourage her to dress beautifully, to accentuate her strong qualities and, and all of those things, um, to allow her the freedom to choose clothing that she loves and is feels good about wearing and accentuates the strengths that she has, et cetera, et cetera. That's a very positive thing for us as a husband to do and not be ashamed of that. Uh, you know, the old Jacob Amon, when he broke away from Menno Simons and formed the Amish Anabaptist group, he stipulated that women, in honoring their husbands, must always wear black, always have their head covered, and never show their legs. That seems to me to be a legalistic, performance-based interpretation of what this is saying. That is not. That is not what this mandates. Uh, that's unfortunate because I mean I'm, I'm like you in the sense that I I love to see Peggy dress up and because it, it really it accentuates the beauty of her face and her hair and the things that attracted me to her. You know, in 1967, when I started, actually, in 1966, when I started dating her. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, affirm and, and encourage our wives to dress, even if it costs us a little bit of extra money, increase the amount of your budget line item on clothing for your wife and let her 
let her do that. No, that's 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 absolutely correct. Thank you for saying that because that brings balance to. I was saying it more in a negative way, but a positive aspect of it is encourage our wives. In some ways, I sense that she's honoring me. By absolutely, and she delights because again, um, Jill Briscoe says this in one of her books that a wife should always, when she is dressing up or however, she should always. I'm. I want to please my husband. I, I want him to still find me attractive. I want, you know, and those kinds of things. That, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of that symbiotic, complementary relationship that is so uh, delightful to see that, yeah. Do you guys go to CBC? Oh, that was great. I, I think you did tell me. It was so neat to see you there. That was, that was probably one of the most enjoyable weekends I've had in at least a year. I did a Reformation conference Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at Jim's church. And oh my goodness, I I became almost a post millennialist after that weekend. I thought the kingdom had come. You don't know what I mean by that, but it was just a lot of fun. Joel, did you have your hand up? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned this in the article as well. Um, I think that's how I close it. But Proverbs uh, thirty-one. That's where I got the title for the article: The Noble Wife. 10 verses 31 of of Proverbs 31 gives a wonderful description of a wife. And uh, you can, if you've never read that, my wife reads that a lot. It's just a reminder. Does it mean a woman cannot work outside the home? No, that's not what it means. Because this noble woman in Proverbs 31 does. She works. She has uh, uh, economic financial responsibility. But it's just the character that's reflected there. And I think that's the reason it's in the in the scriptures, because it really reflects the ideal of what uh, the scriptures talk about. All right, yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. Just real quick. And that's okay. The way I like to look at that clothing issue in the women, yeah, it's like a frame of a picture. The frame can either complement the picture or distract from it. Mm. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, good. All right, now with all of this, uh, I think we now can read First <laughs> Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses. Um, and now a lot of these terms we have already talked about, so I'm not going to go through the terms again. Like, for example, likewise, wives, be subject to your husband. I'm not going to comment on that because we've talked about that. So that even if they do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your pure or respectful and pure conduct. So let's, con- let's focus on the second half of that, that instruction. So again, I'm not going to be talking about what subject or submission means. So what Peter is doing here is saying, even if you're married to a husband who hasn't accepted the gospel has obeyed the word. The gospel has is is not trusted Christ yet. And so, what is he saying? Because they will hear your, or they will see your conduct without you even saying anything. They'll see your respectful. The Greek word there is phobos. It's a worship type, but there's that word respect and pure conduct. The reverence and purity of your life. That's another way to paraphrase that. What they will see is the reverence, your devotion to Christ, 
your allegiance to Christ in the purity of your life, your standards, your morals, your values, your virtues. So what is Peter saying here? How you live will attract people to the the truth, including your husband. And so Peter is doing something here that Paul, in his instructions, doesn't do very often. He brings in the reality that some of you will be married to people who are not believers. Now, you would probably just, if you think about this for a few minutes, would realize in the first century, that was very common because you had a woman come to faith in Jesus Christ and her Roman military officer husband hasn't. I'm just using that as an example, or a, you know, a uh, a Roman merchant family with some affluence and so on, and the wife comes to Christ, but the husband doesn't. And so Peter is saying, and for us today in 2017, that is not a hard thing to understand or imagine or or see. But what if it is that situation? How do I respond? Well, your reverent. And, and pure way of living can be an, like a magnet that will attract your husband to the gospel. Is there a guarantee there? No. What if your husband is abusive? What if the husband is physically abusing his wife? Does she have to stay with him? Does she have to live in that kind of situation? I have been asked that question quite a lot in in various, I'm not a therapist, so I don't do therapeutic counseling, but in various situations, and then I try to pass it off to a therapist because that's way beyond what I could handle. But I don't know how you men would respond to that, but I would, I, in good conscience, I could never ask a woman to go back into an abusive relationship. doesn't necessarily mandate divorce, but it does mandate separation. I just, I couldn't do that. I could never send a woman if her if she's a believer and her husband is is not and he's abusive, I I could not in good conscience do that. Can I tell you a story? It was one of the it was one of the most shocking things that ever happened to me. And this is this was quite a long time. This was a student at Grace. This is certainly four years maybe after I joined faculty. So that's in the late eighties. Peggy and I founded an organization called Marriage Students Fellowship, and uh, we we led it for oh my goodness probably two, twenty years until I got into leadership and then I couldn't do it anymore. Anyway, so, I mean, we were about a 20, it varied depending on, on the academic year, but we always had about 20, maybe 25% of our students were married. And Peggy and I had been so blessed by a marriage fellowship group when we were in seminary that we just decided we started here. And there was one couple, it was, it was just unbelievable, one couple, his wife, uh, Peggy always had a Bible study with the wives on a Monday night. And Peggy, was, his wife would come to the Bible study for these wives crying. And Peggy could never get her to open up. Why? So it was like oh, eight months into the academic years. So that would have been in the following spring. And finally she opened up to her husband and she started talking about how abusive he was. So I started talking to him and he said, oh, well, I can very easily explain it. When she disobeys, I ground her. Did you hear what I just said? When she disobeys, I ground her. 
I take away the car keys. I ground her. She can't go to that event. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, I'm just really curious. What passage of scripture are you using? Is that, is that being the servant-loving head to your wife? Where you're leading her in holiness to heaven? Is, is that treating her as a spiritual equal? Is that honoring your wife? Now that, albeit, that's an extreme. But in that situation, I said to him, I said, I really feel obligated to, to intervene here a little bit. Because what you are doing is you are setting yourself up, number one, for failure in the ministry you want to get into. And number two, you're setting yourself up for failure in your marriage. This is never going to work. I mean, if I knew you were, I would never hire you as a staff member, ever, because of how you are treating your wife. And so it, it seems to me that Dobson used to call it tough love. Even there are certain, certain circumstances, and it takes some wisdom to discern those sometimes, but in certain circumstances where it is important to exercise tough love to force that husband in, in, in these kinds of cases to make a decision. I need help. I need counsel. I need, I am not being the servant loving head of my home. And so I'm using all that because what, what, Peter is saying here is your conduct in an, in an unequally yoked situation matters. And so you seek to be, to be to living a, a, a reverential, pure lifestyle before the Lord that God will use in the life of your husband. Boy, that's hard, though. That is really hard to... To, to bring a young gal, or middle-aged gal, whatever, to that kind of situation. Uh, and we, my wife and I have been involved in these kind of ministries a good part of our life until she got sick. And uh, just unbelievable, unbelievable situations you've seen in, in our years of ministry. But sometimes God uses it in amazing ways to bring a man to faith. Well, uh, what the Filipinos call the God on our wrist is telling me, and I'm watching some of you shuffle your papers, so it's time for me to stop. Now, we are almost done with this. We really are. Next week, we'll easily finish this, and then we'll, we'll have just the one verse on, on husbands, and then I want to move into the, the last major section of the book, starting in verse 8, okay? So I hope it was all right. Um, for me to take this much time on this. I told you, uh, I think I told you this, I really agonized over this. I agonized how I was going to cover it. These few little verses, and I decided, yeah, the Lord doesn't want me to just cover it. He wants to give me the whole, so I shot the whole wad. I packed my shotgun and shot the whole wad at it. So, boy, that's a terrible metaphor. I don't know why I used that. But anyway, I hope it helped you. Probably most of it was just a reminder. So... And I decided to give you the articles for just a little more of an uh, uh, commentary on what all this means. All right? So I'm going to pray. And we'll get out and go into this absolutely beautiful day God's created. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you have given us um, kind of a manufacturer's handbook way. You, you laid out, I've created you. I've created you male and female in my image. 
I've given both male and female who are equal in my image the opportunity to come to faith equally at the cross. Everybody's equal. And as we'll read next week in verse 7, we're joint heirs with Christ. The issue isn't equality. The issue is what are the role responsibilities in a marriage relationship that is committed to Jesus Christ? There are different role responsibilities. And this is very difficult, Lord, today to talk about. It's I've never seen it like this in all my years of ministry. There's so much hostility and uh, pushback and, and almost utter rejection of this. But it seems, Lord, to me so clearly that the Bible is very clear on this. And so I hope, Lord, I faithfully represented what the Bible says about this in all of those passages from Genesis through Paul and now Peter's writings. Lord, if I said anything that was not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds and instead help us to focus on those things that what we said were accurately reflecting what your, your word says. We are all um, in, we're all in the same boat in a sense. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. None of our marriages are perfect. And some, I'm sure I don't know these guys real well, maybe some have gone through some very, very difficult situations. But Lord, in all of that, your grace and your mercy and your love and acceptance is always, always there. And uh, once we put our faith in Christ, that's something we can always be certain of. But we're always in the process, too, of, of doing um, and living our lives in such a way that's more and more honoring to you as we grow in our understanding of you and what, uh, what you're asking of us. We also are growing in our understanding about our wives, about our responsibilities to them, and in a bottom line way, what a loving servant uh, looks like. Lord, we're leading our families in holiness to heaven. And if we can always kind of keep that in our minds, it helps us to always think about but what that looks like in our individual marriages with all their unique idiosyncrasies. So take care of these men, and they're all busy. They've got some responsibilities. Give them your grace each day and help them in their marriages. Help them to be the kind of husbands and fathers, if there are still some children, and grandfathers that you would want them to be. So we want to represent you. We want to represent you well. We ask you to do that in our lives and through us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.